Welcome to today's FFI on Friday. I'm Jordan Rich, and we are pleased to feature Barnett Schechter, an independent historian whose books include The Battle for New York, the city at the heart of the American Revolution. He's delivering a keynote at the FFI Global Conference in October entitled, It's a Family Affair, Conquering New York from Revolution to Rising Seas. Welcome to you, Barnett. Just mentioning the title of your talk has me thinking of what else? The song, It's a Family Affair. That's right. 1971. (laughs) Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, it's all about the the drama of raising a family. And uh, I'm sure that's what a lot of family firms experience is uh, struggles of bringing up the next generation and sibling rivalry. (laughs) It is a family, and it's a a macrocosm of what a family's all about, and that's what we'll get into here. Talk a little bit with us first about the whole subject of geology and how that enters into the the study of this great city that never sleeps. For New York City, uh, geology is destiny (laughs) uh, in the sense that it's a a port city, above all, for most of its history. It's it's been a maritime city. That, in turn, has led to its uh, leading role in manufacturing, uh, industry, but also in in culture and ideas, um, because it's constantly getting a fresh infusion of diverse population of of people, immigrants from all over the world coming and building new lives here. And that's why I I have titled my talk, uh, Conquering New York, uh, from revolution to rising seas, because each uh, generation or each successive wave of immigrants, in a sense, comes to New York to, to succeed and, and to conquer in their own fashion, whether it's an invading army uh, or it's a family business uh, that wants to create a restaurant or other uh, business that they want to hand down to successive generations. And so geology comes into play in the sense that it's really what creates the potential for a major world port. When we go back about 50,000 years and we look at the sheet of ice a mile thick that rolled down uh, from the north and and scraped and scrubbed the landscape, gouging out New York's waterways, the rivers and the harbors. And it deposited where it stopped at the terminal moraine where the glacier stopped moving. It deposited a ridge of debris and rock. And then as the eons progressed and that ice melted, created a vast lake. The lake, the pressure of that water broke through and created a gap, which we now call the Verrazano Narrows, right, where we have a bridge. Um, and that gap is really the, the main entryway into New York's upper bay and its connection to the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and so you have this city at the mouth of the Hudson River which has access 300 miles into the interior of other rivers and lakes in the interior um, and becomes a depot of trade that can then reach the rest of the world. So thanks to geology and nature, you've got this perfect mix of conditions that has created the thriving metropolis. And it was that way even when the Dutch decided to settle in, right? I mean, and the British, they all saw the value of it, perhaps not knowing how great it would become. Absolutely. Um, You know, you have Henry Hudson arriving in 1609 on the the half moon, uh, and then the Dutch actually settling New Amsterdam, later New York, um, in 1624, and then establishing 
a trading post uh, for Orange up at now what's now Albany, the city of Albany, the state capital, uh, and trading furs with the Iroquois and um, trading with the Lenape Indians who were in the immediate area. Uh, and of course, the British, again, speaking of conquering New York, the British come along, take it from the Dutch uh, about 40 years later. Um, it changes hands again uh, between the British and the Dutch uh, in 1673. But then eventually we get 100 years of British rule until the revolution. Uh, but yeah, in both of those cases, the city at the at the mouth of the Hudson with this, this great protected harbor and at the same time access to the Atlantic uh, became this great locus of trade um, for the British. It became part of their mercantile system where they're able to exploit the raw materials of the continent uh, and have a market for their uh, expensive manufactured goods. It became part of a triangular trade with the, the sugar islands of the Caribbean um, where the food from New York's farms um, was shipped down from the city. It supplied food to those sugar islands so they could produce their cash crop and make huge profits on sugar and in turn ship it to America where it was made into rum which in turn was traded for enslaved people in Africa. So you can start to see New York um, drawn into this uh, kind of global role um, because of its strategic location at the, the center of the Atlantic seaboard um, and at the mouth of this great river. Mm -hmm. There's a play called the Lehman Trilogy. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it about the Lehman yeah. Brothers. I just saw it here in uh, Boston and was obviously impressed by the production. But what I learned was uh, you had these industries that sort of grew up based on the slave trade, uh, say the textile industry and fashions and linens and so forth and so on. And New York was where these industries blossomed. The materials came from other places, but New York put it into practice. And the Lehmans are one example of a family that was able to succeed in that regard. New York, in in many ways, well, all of the northern British colonies uh, were implicated or complicit in uh, the trade and the practice of slavery because they propped it up. They supported it with with their manufacturing, with their loans of money, and as you say, with production of textiles that clothed the slaves. By the time we get to the Civil War, in America, New York City and its many family businesses, as you mentioned, are deeply involved in the cotton kingdom. The, the two economies of, of New York and the South are deeply enmeshed. And we start to see that influence the city's politics in a powerful way. And it's, I, I think, almost a kind of secret history that many Americans don't know. But New York City was an anti-war hotbed during the Civil War. Mm. And, and the city never voted for Abraham Lincoln the two times he was elected president. <laughs> in fact, the largest riots, the deadliest riots in American history, erupted on the streets of New York in 1863 in direct response to a first federal draft of soldiers. Right, right. But also very much as a response to Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, the freeing of the slaves. And so it was really a, a kind of outcry against the vast changes that, that Lincoln was bringing. There's so much here to dig into. I want to ask you about the borough system, the fact that it's New York City, but it's actually different enclaves of individuals and customs and mores and businesses. 
the system seems to have worked well. Was it uh, innovative at its time, and and was it an effective way to divvy up the city back then? We should say that the city was consolidated in 1898, and Manhattan joined with Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx, and Staten Island to form one city of greater New York. And I think there were a lot of efficiencies that were gained, and it seems to be a successful experiment <laughs> to this day. Although I think there, there are some things that we can mention that, that might work better than they do. You know, in 1904, the first subway was opened in New York. And of course, it expanded in the succeeding decades. And that, of course, had the positive effect of relieving a lot of overcrowding in the slums of lower Manhattan, where the tenements had uh, grown up. And it enabled people to form, as you mentioned, these different ethnic enclaves in what Manhattanites would call the outer boroughs, right? Hmm. <laughs> uh, and so that, that certainly had a positive effect. But as we're seeing today, uh, particularly after we're you know, evaluating the effects of the pandemic, we're starting to realize that you know, being out in Queens somewhere and having to go to work in Manhattan um, may not be the ideal solution <laughs> for raising right. a family or maybe running a family business. I think, you know, when you look at what the, the governor and the mayor are saying today in terms of getting the city back on its feet post-pandemic, I think there's a, there's a sense that the five boroughs need to maybe become more equal in the sense that mm -hmm. we need to develop business centers all in a less centralized way to serve more people more equitably. Family business, as well as any business, thrives on innovation. And one thing about New York, and I know you're you're so well-versed in this area, the innovation that that city has brought to the world. And I'm going to just mention something you mentioned, the Brooklyn Bridge. I mean, it was a, a wonder of the world at the time. And the idea of creating canals, the Erie Canal, and all these other things that uh, sort of had their, their heartbeat in the New York area. This says a lot about the innovation and the innovative spirit of New York, doesn't it? Absolutely. Again, that goes back to what we started with, New York as a, a world port. So, of course, it's, it's bringing in commerce uh, from far-flung places, but it's also bringing in new people, new ideas. You mentioned the Brooklyn Bridge, the Roeblings. There's a, a family dynasty, in a sense, designing the bridge and handing it down to the sun. And I think when we think about innovation in New York, we, we also think about major families who've left a lasting mark mm. on the city. Um, you know, we think of before the Civil War, uh, John Jacob Astor was the richest man. Um, later, we see the, the Morgan dynasty, banking dynasty come up, um, the Guggenheims, and so on. Um, and these are people, Morgan in particular, was um, innovating in new ways of uh, developing business, right? Morgan was, J.P. Morgan was, um, you know, financing mergers and creating huge corporations and uh, in railroads and steel communications, right? American Telegraph, 
so these huge uh, family dynasties also helped drive some of that innovation by creating new ways of doing business. Family businesses have morphed and changed with the times economically, but I mean, you can even look at, say, the arts and realize that uh, it's a family of artists, whether it's an actual family or not, bringing some of the greatest art in the world, theater, music, dance, visual art, it's a center for culture. It's a center for diversity in that regard as well. New York is constantly going through growing pains, even today, Barney, with crime on the rise and, and issues of homelessness that all cities face. But there's something about New York that is very cyclical in a positive nature, in a positive note. I mean, post 9-11, New York bounced back like no other city could ever bounce back. What is that special something that New York City seems to have in your estimation? Well, I think that's absolutely right. New York has constantly had to reinvent itself and make opportunities from crisis. <laughs> I mean, if you look back to the American Revolution, uh, it was the city was conquered by the British in 1776, occupied under military rule for seven years, during which time a quarter of the city burned down. People lived in, in hovels and ruins and tents for seven years. Um, and the city, like a phoenix, grew out of the ashes and into the early 19th century and, and became this great port. And then the city lost its status as a port in the 20th century, right? Containerization came along and the shipping industry changed and everything moved elsewhere to New Jersey. All the warehouses closed in New York, right? So, and what has New York done? Well, it's, it's created these wonderful public spaces Brooklyn Bridge Park, right? Um, Hudson River Park. It's it's reevaluated re its relationship to the natural world around it. It's a wonderful, it's an archipelago of islands mm. um, with all kinds of opportunities for um, public space and public um, engagement. So I think that's absolutely true that that the city has always um, reinvented itself, moved forward in positive way, and a lot of that has to do with with its people. There was slavery here. There were there were brutal uh, repressions of, of the native population. But to some extent, New York has always had a kind of tolerant or diverse ethos, starting with the Dutch, starting because it was founded by the Dutch West India Company, which basically said, you can come here, work for the company, make money for the company. We don't care what your religion is or your creed. We're, we're basically interested in, in a, having a kind of company town. Oddly, that has led to a kind of a diversity, a, plur, a pluralism that I think is, as you say, become kind of part of New York's DNA as a city. Right. It's a great conversation that you'll be having in more detail with the the folks in the fall at the FFI conference. But I wanted to conclude by asking you your thoughts on the future not just economically, but structurally and geologically, uh, many scientists believe that the global warming issue will affect the tides and the rising seas and so forth. What impact does that have on a future New York and what families are thinking about as they think about their generations to come? Obviously, civic leaders are starting to think about this. The pandemic exposed certain um, fault lines or problems that are not unrelated to the climate crisis. And so I think the city is starting to make plans and ecologists, scientists are, are looking forward and saying, you know, what, what becomes of an archipelago, of a group of islands? You know, apparently the, there was an article the other day saying that the skyscrapers, the weight of New York skyscrapers is causing 
the city to sink at about a millimeter a year. Uh, kind of a staggering thought. But also, clearly, there's the idea that we need to reestablish wetlands uh, to absorb the uh, storm surges. We need to recreate some of the natural terrain, the, the creeks and rivers where stormwater should naturally flow into to prevent flooding. These kinds of ideas are, are being put forward. There's a wonderful book called Manhattan by Eric Sanderson, um, which looks at Manhattan 400 years ago in 1609 and 400 years from now. One of his conclusions is that we may actually have to take a page from the Lenape, from the, the Native Americans who were the first inhabitants of this area, and start to go back to nature to have more urban farms, green buildings that are actually literally green because they have rooftop gardens and uh, other ways of absorbing the light and rainfall. So it's a vision of New York as still as a, a densely populated city, but one that's more self-sufficient in terms of producing food and reducing um, its carbon footprint by the, the transfer of materials that come in and out of the city. It's a re-envisioning, and I think this dovetails with what mayor and the governor are talking about right now is transforming our public spaces so that there's more pedestrian traffic, there's more mixed use business districts where old skyscrapers are being turned into residential buildings and people are working closer to where they live. You know, it's going to be a, a greener, more smog-free world. And as New York goes, so goes many of the cities in the nation, including the one I'm broadcasting in right now, Boston. We've taken a lot of lead from New York City, as many do. Thank you for your wisdom and insight and exuberance about this topic. I think a lot of people are going to love hearing from you. Thank you so much, Jordan. My pleasure. Thank you to Barnett Schechter for this fascinating discussion about New York City's past and future and how they influenced the city's family enterprises. It'll be the subject of his keynote speech at the upcoming FFI Global Conference, which brings together thought leaders from around the world to share in their latest work and research in the family enterprise field. Now, to learn more, just visit www.ffi.org. Have a great day, and thank you for listening.